Hey, Core Console family. Before we get started, I want to let you know that Cole and I have once again partnered with FreeCE for our listeners to claim ACP accredited continuing education for this podcast episode. Listeners will have the opportunity to claim one hour of home study continuing education credit by following the link that's in the description or the show notes below. For free CE members, this service is included in your membership benefits at no additional cost. Simply follow the link provided to take the post-test and evaluation for this activity and earn your one hour of CE credit. Use the password OXYGEN in all caps O-X-Y-G-E-N to unlock the post-test for this episode. If you're sitting at home and you're thinking, wait, I'm not a free CE member, well, Cole and I invite you to unlock the benefits included with their unlimited membership on their CE platform. Free CE offers hundreds of live webinars, on-demand webcasts, home study monographs, and of course, accredited Core Consult RX podcasts, and now offering pharmacy news with the RX News Connection. From now until October 15th, 2021, Core Console RX listeners can receive $10 off the purchase of an unlimited membership by entering the discount code CCRX10. And that's CCRX10. You can either put that in at the checkout or there's going to be a link in the show notes that'll take you right to that portion of the checkout process. Make sure you check out FreeCE.com and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks. What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to episode 154 of the Core Consult RX podcast. I'm Mike Corvino. Cole Swanson is with me here. We also got our uh, producer, AJ. AJ, what's up, buddy? Good evening. So AJ is helping us with all of our cameras and all that stuff like Love that. Love having him back there. It feels like a weight is taken off of it us. It sure does. We just know we're in good hands. We don't have to worry about not hitting the record button, which has definitely happened before. Or, you know, if something just breaks down over there, it's handled instead of us scrambling while we're recording. There you go. Great. So, um, this uh, episode, we're going to be covering asthma. And uh, like we said in the beginning, uh, this is going to be for continuing education credit. Um, if you're a member of freece.com, so make sure you uh, follow the directions that will be in the show notes and um, claim credit for this after you listen. So, hopefully, you learn something and can pass our little, our little quiz that we have. It's the best way to do it. And before we get started, I want to make sure that I give a huge thank you for today's sponsor, Pearls. Pearls is a drug reference for the next generation of healthcare provider to learn about commonly prescribed medications. You can quickly learn or reference counseling points, clinical pearls, I get it, <laughs> comparison charts, and more at pearls.com. That's P-Y-R-L-S.com, or I invite you to download the mobile app for the iOS or Android platforms. Core Console RX listeners can sign up for free and download a three-page asthma pharmacotherapy chart bundle. The first chart is going to include a breakdown of the 2021 Global Initiative for Asthma Guidelines for patients that are 12 years of age and older. The second page is going to include all of the different ICS inhalers that are on the market and kind of break them down by potency so you can kind of compare and contrast the options that are available. And the third page is going to have a list of all the various inhalers and the combo products with pictures so you can kind of help remember that and hopefully find the right inhaler formulation for your patient. So please check out pearls.com slash core console rx right now to sign up for free if you don't want to continue your free membership you can unsubscribe at any time 
I don't think that's going to be an issue though. I think Pearls is a great resource. Please check them out. Support those who support us. And once again, a big thank you to Pearls for sponsoring this episode. All right. Without further ado, Cole, where should we begin? I say we begin at the top. Let's talk about what asthma is, right? What is asthma? So yeah, we're getting continuing education credit for this one. So we're going to take it from the beginning to the end with emphasis on um, the some of the biologics and some of the things that are usually glossed over but are being used more these days and are probably the future. Um, but I digress. So asthma, disease that affects the bronchi of the lungs, right? Um, patients are going to have a predisposition to chronic airway inflammation and bronchoconstriction. Um, it results in expiratory airflow limitations, which we'll talk about how to measure that and what the best ways to do that are later on. Um, some signs and symptoms you'll see, wheezing, breathlessness, chest tightness, coughing. Um, the intensity can vary depending on uh, time of the year, the activity of the patient, and that sort of thing. Uh, they're frequently worse at night, the symptoms are, and uh, when waking up in the morning, and that's kind of a mark of severity as well if you wake up with symptoms. Uh, they can be triggered by exercise, like I said, allergens, cold air, even laughter, um, and they often um, occur or worsen with viral infections. And uh, we'll also talk about some of the inflammatory um, cells that are involved, especially eosinophils um, will come into play when we talk about some of the monoclonal antibodies um, and, you know, just some of the underlying um, path that we'll kind of revisit when we talk about those. Um, but ultimately, you know, the asthma is a multifactorial disease, I, I would say. So the environmental factors um, are, like Cole said, some of these triggers um, are a big kind of player in controlling asthma. So making sure the patients can avoid um, certain triggers that will potentially worsen or exacerbate their asthma. So things as simple as allergens, you know, the, there is an allergic component a lot of times that is associated with asthma. So patients can have, um, you know, allergies to grass or weeds or dust mites, animal dander, uh, what have you. And that inflammatory response to those allergens can then trigger worsening of the asthma symptoms. Um, environmental irritants is a big factor as well. So tobacco smoke, you know, we always think about tobacco smoke with like our COPD patients and smoking cessation and whatnot, but even secondhand smoke in the home, if it's a child with asthma and the parents are smoking, uh, you know, the, the tobacco smoke secondhand can still um, kind of worsen symptoms. Symptoms. Um, like Cole said, lifestyle, you know, whether it's stress or, you know, them um, exercising uh, or even like laughter, like you said, you know, it can all be potential triggers. Certain medications have even been shown to uh, worsen asthma. So things like aspirin or NSAIDs, especially chronic use of those you know, can can lead to it. Uh, patients that, you know, when they get um, respiratory infections, so influenza, things like that, they can, COVID-19 obviously, um, can play a big role in how well controlled their their asthma is. And then um, other like comorbid conditions that we have to think about. So allergic rhinitis um, can be a factor. GERD, um, patients that uh, are obese, um, patients that have obstructive uh, sleep apnea, atopic dermatitis. There's lots of different um, kind of ways that uh, patients can have different comorbidities that kind of worsen their, their asthma symptoms and how well it's controlled. Right. 
And I mentioned the wheezing, the shortness of breath, coughing, chest tightness. These are all characteristic of asthma, but it's not always clear if it is asthma or not, especially early on when you're taking a history. So there's some things that you can look out for that might um, point towards the probability of it being asthma to be increased. Um, those would be a patient, especially an adult, who has more than one of these types of symptoms. So not just shortness of breath, but shortness of breath with wheezing or with cough and whatnot. Um, if, if they're worse at night or in the early morning, that points towards asthma. Um, that if they vary over time and in intensity, if it varies, more likely to be asthma as opposed to something else. Um, and triggered by some of the things that Mike mentioned, viral infections, exercise, allergen exposure. So if you can, it, irritants, if you can point towards one of those things um, and, and say that it triggers it, more likely to be asthma. There's also some things that decrease the probability that it's asthma. Um, if it's an isolated cough with no other respiratory symptoms, might not be asthma. Um, if they have a chronic production of sputum or shortness of breath associated with like dizziness or lightheadedness um, or paresthesias, may not be asthma, might be something else. Uh, if they have significant chest pain or um, exercise-induced um, trouble breathing with noisy inspiration specifically, um, could be something else other than asthma. So as, as far as kind of um, assessing the patient's um, expiratory airflow limitations, um, we use spirometry. Um, once the patient kind of has established uh, with diagnosis of asthma, sometimes from their for like their day-to-day -day use to see how well controlled their asthma is, they'll use like a... Um, a peak expiratory flow um, meter or peak flow meter, um, which can help um, kind of, you know, assess how well the asthma is staying controlled. But initial diagnosis is usually going to be done with spirometry. Um, so just to kind of look at a couple terms, if you will. So things like the FEV1, which is the uh, forced expiratory volume in one second. Um, also the FVC, which is the maximum volume of air exhaled after taking a, a deep breath in. Um, and then the FEV1 is the, that amount of air that can be forcefully exhaled in one second. So similar, but basically you would get a, a ratio of those two. So the FEV1 over the FVC, which is um, representing like the percentage of total air capacity that can be forcefully exhaled in, in one second. Um, and as far as, you know, assessing on top of all that, like getting all their other like history of symptoms and things like that, like Cole mentioned, just to make sure that we need to um, continue going forward. Spirometry is going to be important on sort of the back end, um, but uh, assessing spirometry is going to be the final diagnosis to kind of see where we, if we need to keep digging further or, um, you know, if we need to, if it could be, if it's an older patient, could be COPD or what, what have you. So, um, if you do spirometry and you in the FEV1 over FVC is low, so less than 70%, um, that's indicative of an obstructive, um, deficit. So if the, um, the FVC by itself is less than 80%. Um, that could be um, another uh, other condition, so hyperinflation versus um, some kind of a combination of obstruction plus restriction. But if it's if it's not the FVV or excuse me FVC is not less than 80%, then it's going to be more indicative of like pure obstruction. Um, so then we're going to assess the FEV1 by itself. And if it's um, greater than 80%, it's borderline obstruction. If it's 65 to 80, that's going to be mild. 50 to 64 is moderate uh, obstruction. And then less than 50 is severe obstruction. 
And then we would give a beta agonist to kind of see how much of that FEV1 we can kind of reverse. And so if you get a greater than 12% increase in FEV1 after giving that beta agonist, then that's more indicative of asthma. If you don't get that, it may be more indicative of COPD. And we can go down that down that trail. Um, yeah. yeah. And I mean, it makes sense. So the FEC being the force vital capacity, how much air can you inspire? Can you suck in? And then versus how much of that is coming out? You can almost think of it from like a heart failure perspective. The, the FEC is the filling and then the FEV1 is the systolic, you know, spraying out of the blood. I mean, in this case, the air. So how much are we taking in and then how much is going out? If it's not enough, then going out, then it's an obstruction and we need to assess it um, kind of how we're going to. Um, but yeah, there's also a peak flow meter, um, which you've probably seen and that's probably what you were more familiar with. It's this, um, little, I don't even know how to describe it, but, um, thing that they're going to hold in their hand and then they're going to blow into, um, and it's going to measure kind of the intensity of the air coming out, uh, and it'll bop up to a certain number and it's very patient specific as to what those numbers mean. So they'll set certain zones. Um, they'll color code them in green, yellow, and red. Green being 80 to 100% of the personal best that the patient has blown before. Yellow being 50 to 80% of the personal best. Um, and then red being less than 50% of the personal best. So this is something you can pull out if, if you're concerned the patient is symptomatic and you're trying to assess how severe it is at that moment. Um, you can see whether they have good control over their symptoms. If they're up in the green zone, yellow would be cautious. Red, you probably want to you know take part in whatever action plan you've determined at that time. And it's also a quick way to assess uh, control. But as far as diagnosis, um, the spirometry is definitely the the um, the gold standard versus the peak flow meter. And then as far as kind of assessing the severity of the asthma, you know, when we think of mild asthma, um, we're thinking, um, you know, basically it's, it's fairly well controlled. Um, and you know, maybe they're, they're having symptoms very, um, very infrequently. Um, but mild asthma, um, is going to be, when we show the, the GINA, um, kind of, algorithm or stepwise um, treatment options, you'll see mild asthma is going to be more steps one and two, which are going to be very similar as far as um, whether we're using a controller or maintenance inhaler. Um, and then moderate asthma is going to be where we um, intensify treatment a little bit more. Um, however, it may be the same type of medication we see in steps one and two. Uh, however, it's, it's just more higher dose or more potent um, corticosteroids. And then when we get to severe, we're, that's when we're going to start looking at some of our other options that we can add on and, and uh, by even biologic uh, therapies in some cases. So I figured out how to uh, describe the peak flow meter. Did, okay. It's like a kazoo. It is like a kazoo. It's like it's a like handheld. A thick kazoo. It's like a handheld thick kazoo. It's a good, yeah. yeah perfect. It's a perfect description for yeah, it. Thank you. I Incredible. appreciate that. Um, yes. So Mike described the, um, the, the severity scales. There's also some tools we can use to assess severity. They might call these numerical asthma control, control tools. Um, there's one called the asthma control questionnaire, the ACQ. Um, there's all it, the scores range from zero to six. Higher is worse depending on how the patient scores. There's also the asthma control test, and those scores range from five to twenty-five. Um, with higher obviously being worse, but just some some tools you can use to kind of see what the uh, the patient's symptoms are like and whatnot, and maybe help you make uh, kind of a clinical decision for treatment. 
So when it comes to all the various treatment options, that's where things can get very uh, This is where we're going to have some fun, right? Yes. And then, you know, this is where the the asthma world, I would say, was turned upside down uh, in, what, 2019? It's like two years ago, yeah. When uh, the GINA guidelines kind of completely threw a wrench into what we've known for asthma treatment for I think we did a pretty timely podcast on that years. at the time, right? Yeah. A couple yeah, years ago? Yeah. We did. Um, if we do say so ourselves, we do say so ourselves. <laughs> but uh, before we even talk about the various treatment options, um, one of the th- important things that's going to be, you know, needs to be discussed with the patient is, you know, the actual inhaler device itself. Um, there's depending on which you know study you're looking at, um, there's some that say as, as many as eighty percent of patients um, cannot use their inhaler hundred percent correctly, uh, and a lot of times the just the lack of um, knowledge as far as how the, the, the inhaler device works appropriately can actually lead to poor symptom control and, and even exacerbations. And, and I've actually, I always think about a story where um, I, I saw this patient, this happened years ago, but I saw this patient who uh, was on Spiriva hand inhaler, where you put the capsule in and puncture the capsule and breathe in the powder, um, telling me that you know, it just doesn't work. He doesn't feel any relief from his um, inhaler and blah, blah, blah. So I, he brought it into the, the appointment and um, I, I watched him take a dose of, of the uh, Spiriva and he took the capsule out of the uh, little foil, tossed it in his mouth, swallowed that real quick with no water even, just a complete just dry swallow. And then... Uh, Very dry because he's going to have anticholinergic side that's, effects, right? That's a... Yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> but um, the... Uh, and then he just kind of breathed into his inhaler with no medicine in it, obviously. And... And I was just like, I was so stunned that he swallowed the capsule that I, I almost thought he was like joking at first. And then he's like, see, I'm doing it. And I was like, well, that explains why uh, it's not working and only giving you side effects. I wonder what that does to your bowels. Probably just makes you pretty constipated. Can't be good, right? Can't be. Can't imagine. I, Mike has all these nice anecdotes. I'm trying to think of one. The only one that I can think of is with the um, the Spreva Respimat. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of people have trouble. To me, when I first looked at that device, I was like, this is amazing. It's so convenient. You just pop it open and it sprays it in your mouth. I had a lot of um, older people have issues with it. I think the most common one was just pushing the canister in, you know? Yeah, because you have to put some force on there. You have to put some force on there, but I feel like I had some lady who, I mean, she would just, it was a coordination thing because you would think that it would be pretty easy with coordination, but it was a coordination thing too. She would pop the cap and just push the button at the wrong time and it would squirt the dose. So it, it, it was, so they, they mentioned so many times in the guidelines to assess how the patient is actually using it to do exactly what Mike told you to do and watch them use it so they can demonstrate for you. I've done this countless times as well when somebody said an inhaler was broken because usually it's not, but sometimes it is, but usually it's not. Um, so watch them do it and help them do some, some show and tell and demonstrate because that's definitely the number one um, issue. Uh, you might've mentioned the stat of up to 80% of patients can't use mm-hmm. their inhaler correctly. Yeah. Seems extremely high, but I guess if you take all the steps from, from the beginning to the end, your I would probably mess up um, as well. So just make sure they're doing it right. I'll or at get, least enough to get the dose in. You know what I mean? I'll give one more anecdote real quick. Oh, he's got them all. Move on he's got them all. This one happened to me just like a, maybe two months ago. I shouldn't say it's funny, but it kind of was. Um, the patient was the sweetest lady of all time, older patient, and uh, she, she's telling me how her Simbacort is not working for her um, as her rescue inhaler for asthma, which we're, uh, you know, spoiler alert, we're going to get to. But uh, I, so I had the same thing. I had to bring in and show me how to do it. So was, her directions were to do um, one to two puffs as needed, you know, whatever, every six hours. So I said, okay, can I 
you know, watch you do it. She said, okay. And she takes a huge, like, um, like breath in and breathes out and then to get, you know, kind of ready. And then just goes as hard as she could, starts breathing <laughs> it and just rapid fires her Simba court like 19 times into her mouth. And I was like, Oh no. And she's like, I don't see, I don't even know if I'm getting it. I'm using a lot. I was like, okay. I think that's all just kind of going into your mouth. And she wasn't holding her breath. I mean, nothing was, it probably wasn't getting into her lungs. So, um, yeah, we had to, did you give a reason why she was doing that, pressing it that many times? I never asked. I was just for those of you who are just listening, you should go look at the YouTube video and watch Mike demonstrate because it was, (laughs) it was pretty fantastic. I'm surprised. I was wondering if you were going to say it says one to two, like with the dash and she was doing it like 12 times or something because she thought it was 12. No, I never, never, never asked because uh, I didn't want her to feel bad or anything. So I just was like, okay, well, let's try this from now on. I just kind of blew past it like it was normal behavior. <laughs> but um, if you do need like more information um, about like the inhaler devices and stuff, you can go to the Gina website. So um, J or excuse me, G I N A S T H M A. So Gina Asthma dot org, um, or you can also check out our uh, handy dandy uh, work sh- uh, sheets that uh, our sponsor Pearls gave out. Those things um, also are very well put together and can give you more information as far as technique and all that. So I would definitely encourage you to kind of have some kind of patient education material that you can physically hand the patient to go home with. Yes. But especially because just for us in general, they get confusing. So we'll go over a couple of the common ones here. Um, but you have your good old handy meter dose inhaler, which is an aerosolized liquid medication. Some use a propellant. So when you push the button, it just sprays right out HFA. Um, this requires kind of the opposite of what Mike described a second ago, slow, deep inhalation at the same time as pressing the canister. So kind of what I described with the coordination issue that can be um, uh, something that people have some trouble with, just pushing the button and breathing in, even though it doesn't have to be a hard, forceful thing. But, uh, you know, they might have more trouble with a dry powder inhaler. That's why it's important to watch them do it. But with the meter dose inhaler, you can use a spacer for the patients who can't coordinate. With the dry powder inhaler, it's just a very fine powdered medication. There's no propellant involved. This one would require more of a quick, forceful inhalation that Mike described. Just don't do it 19 times. Um, Can't use a spacer with this one, and you don't have to shake it. There's also nebulizers, uh, which is a little bit different. This takes a liquid medication and turns it into a fine mist. So you'll see this a lot in the hospital, but also patients will take nebulizers home or have home nebulizers and use a nebulizer solution so they can just put a mask on or they just hold their lips around um, uh, I guess a mouthpiece a device and they can breathe naturally through the mouthpiece and get the uh, get the dose that way as well so we'll get into to some of the actual medications and then we'll we'll mention some of the other devices as we kind of go but um, we'll start off with our our old favorite rescue inhalers that have uh, now, especially for adult patients, kind of falling out of favor a little bit. But wow. you know um, what stinks is it was like right after they went generic. I mean, it had to have been less true. than a year after they went generic, and finally they're not you know seventy five dollars a pop or whatever. And it's like, yeah, we don't want to use these anymore. Yeah, oops. <laughs> yeah, but um, we have our albuterol, which comes as various brand names: so Pro Air, Ventolin, Proventol, to name a few. We also have our uh, Lev albuterol. Um, Zopinex is the brand name for that. Um, so these were classically used as the relievers, the rescue inhalers to kind of uh, assist in opening the airways within you know minutes of inhalation. Um, they're they're 
peak onset is going to be uh, 30 to 60 minutes, and they're going to last around four to six hours. Uh, and basically what they're doing is they're just binding to the, the beta-2 androgenic receptors and the, the lungs. They're going to increase cyclic AMP levels, and that's going to cause bronchial smooth muscle relaxation, um, as well as inhibit the release of immediate um, hypersensitivity mod, uh, mediators from mast cells. And so um, they, they've, again, classically been used for a long time. Um, adverse effects, the they can cause almost like stimulant-like effects where you can get like some nervousness, um, even a tremor, uh, tachycardia, um, palpitations. Uh, it can result in a cough with overuse and even uh, hyperglycemia in some cases. And that's usually seen with, um, you know, frequent overuse, but that can't happen even in, um, when using it properly. Um, and then you want to monitor the frequency of use because that can kind of help uh, dictate whether or not the asthma is truly under control or if they need, um, you know, to be on a, a separate controller medication. Um, and we're going to get into where these fall into therapy in a little bit because I don't even like talking about these as the rescue inhaler because they're second line now for rescue, but for for adults especially. Right. But you're, I mean, just in practice, you're going to see a lot of them used unless you're the one prescribing it because then you'll be prescribing the combo that we'll talk about later. Absolutely. But um, as far as other short-acting options, there's the short-acting muscarinic antagonists, the SAMAs. Um, these are anticholinergic. Um, so the anticholinergic side effects that I was talking about would be the there's all sorts of mnemonics to remember it, but the dry eyes, the dry mouth, urinary retention, constipation. Uh, but ipratropium is the short-acting one. Um, it's more often used in COPD, but is sometimes used off-label in asthma exacerbations. I think you'll see that commonly like in the hospital with Duoneb. nebulizer duonebs. Yeah. Um, onset is very quick, just a few minutes, but it is less effective than Asaba. Um, it has a peak at two hours with a duration of about four to six hours, very similar to the Saba. But, um, yeah, side effects that I described, also scratchy throat and taste kind of bitter, um, but not your first line for a rescue med, but is used for other things. Definitely a good option uh, when you combine with albuterol for COPD, though, so yep. keep that in mind. Um, as far as our inhaled corticosteroids, so our ICS, um, we have several different formulations available. Um, we have the uh, budesonide, um, we have fluticasone, propionate, we have fluticasone furates, mometasone. Um, there's several others av available, but um, you know these are commonly used to kind of help with the inflammation that's seen with asthma and, and used as kind of like to control the underlying disease. And so with adverse effects for these disorders, uh, Phonia can happen, um, oral candidiasis, and that's really something that I feel like is a easy counseling point that we need to be making sure that patients are aware of is, you know, in order to prevent that um, you know, thrush from happening in the mouth, um, we want to encourage patients to rinse their mouth out after each use um, with the NICS. So that basically what's happening is the steroid itself is kind of killing off some of the normal flora of bacteria um, or suppressing the normal flora of bacteria in your mouth so that the um, fungal species can then grow uninhibited uh, and the patient can, can get thrush. Um, the, the inhalers themselves that have these ICS, you know, whether it's, if it's the, uh, ICS by itself, they all have various directions, potencies and, and this, that, and the other. Um, they also have a budesonide nebulized formulation that, uh, is, is available as well. Um, but just make sure you're double checking directions and dosing and all that stuff for insurance purposes. If you're going to, um, prescribe one of these, uh, ICSs, especially if it's by itself, um, you know, the, the, 
I guess the thrush like kind of risk, I never really thought too much about it until like I did a rotation uh, when I was in school still in the stick you. Mm-hmm. And I remember this patient was getting, uh, I think it was Simbacort at the time and I uh, was getting Simbacort uh, inhaled for, I, I can't remember what, if it was asthma or COPD back then, but um, the patient kept getting thrush and they were in there the ICU the entire time I was on rotation that month. And they just kept getting thrush, kept getting thrush and uh, they couldn't figure out why. And I, I, I like, you know, I had that moment of bravery where I spoke up on rounds as a P4 student. And I was like, uh, is anyone rinsing his mouth out with water after he gets done using it after the nurse gives him the inhaler? And I just remember like the surgeon, like my preset, everybody just kind of like stopping and like staring at like the, like their chart and looking around each other. And, the, and then they were like, Oh crap. And that, that was it. Like the thrush went away. I was so proud of myself for that. <laughs> and they were like, all right, P4 coming through in the clutch. Maybe, uh, that um, was my moment. And then maybe I, I just need to live more life and I'll have as many anecdotes as you. Is that what it is? I, I think I you just got a good one lucky. for each little section, right? Which I've been saving them up. <laughs> <laughs> you think about them beforehand. Not I, really. I guess it's on the fly. Um, Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Great. Look at Mike. A little fourth year, Mike. It's fantastic. Yep. Long time ago. So uh, we also have some um, other long-acting options. So our long-acting beta-2 agonists, the LABAs, as opposed to the SABAs. Um, Salmeterol is one. The brand is the Cerevent discus when it's by itself. But as you'll see, this is usually used in combination in this instance. Um, It's used twice daily for maintenance therapy, but it has a black box warning for increased asthma-related death. so you'd say, well, why would we use a LABA in asthma if it has an increased risk of death? seems like it goes against the point. Um, because it can be used in combination with an ICS. So you never want to use it as a reliever, um, and it should not be given without an ICS. So the trial that kind of showed this was the SMART trial, pretty large trial with over 26,000 patients. It put salmeterol by itself versus placebo in asthma patients. Um, there were 13 deaths in the salmeterol group versus three in the placebo, uh, and it got that black box warning. As far as the combination goes, we have a couple of trials that show some more safety with that. So the Vestri trial, V-E-S-T-R-I, showed the, had the combo salmeterol flutigazone versus flutigazone by itself in young patients, 4 to 11 years old. The rate of asthma-related events was similar in patients with the asthma treated with the combination therapy versus the monotherapy, so safe, right? The combo was safe versus the ICS by itself. Um, The percentage of rescue therapy-free days was similar in patients that were treated with the combo versus the ICS by itself, um, so safe and uh, generally effective. Then there was the Austri trial, A-U-S-T-R-I, was a study in older patients over 12 years old and had comparable safety data um, to the Vestry trial. So because of that, the FDA took off the black box warning with the meds that have the combo um, because of these outcomes, but with the just plain LABA, it still has the black box warning on there. And it makes sense too, like mechanistically. So when we kind of think about like the long-term use of a, of a beta agonist, especially a long-acting beta agonist, you sort of get like this down regulation of those beta receptors because they're constantly being 
you know, activated. And so uh, basically what we've seen is that the corticosteroids uh, basically upregulate those beta receptors. So you're kind of counteracting the effects of that, the long-term beta agonist activity. And then there's also uh, some studies that have, that have showed that uh, potentially LABAs can activate corticosteroid receptors and enhance the transcription of anti-inflammatory mediators. So there's almost like the LABA is increasing the efficacy and the availability of the ICS to do its job, and the ICS is increasing those receptors um, for the, the beta-2 receptors to make sure that the LABA can do its job. So there's like this synergistic effect with the combo versus the LABA by itself. So point of that story, don't ever give a LABA by itself without an ICS in a patient with asthma. That is no good. It's a no-no. Um, so there are various uh, ICS LABA combinations available, and so usually when you're seeing um, something like Cerevent, if you even see that nowadays, it's going to be used by itself in, in COPD, where we're not worried about that. Um, but uh, the ICS LABA's um, combinations are much more um, frequently used in, in asthma patients. So we have things like our Symbacort, which is budesonide and formoterol. We have our Advair discus, which is fluticasone and somedorol. Um, we have Dolera, which is mometazone and uh, formoterol. And we have Brio, which is fluticasone and volantarol. Um, also, you know, when you're picking between these, if you're truly using these as like a maintenance inhaler where they're just getting it scheduled throughout the day, you're still using albuterol as a rescue. If you're doing the old school guidelines, then, you know, really the way to pick between these is one going to be a number of times that they need to dose per day for, you know, patient's convenience. And then also making sure that you're taking into account the patient's insurance formulary, you know, and, and making sure that the patient's insurance will cover whatever brand you're picking. Some will prefer Brio over Advair, vice versa. And, you know, it's something that we have to, I think a lot of times we don't take into account, but is a very important um, aspect of making sure they get on the proper therapy. Yeah, and getting on it quickly because the longer that those issues take to suss out, the longer they will go before they get on the medication. And and also, too, keeping in mind the actual device that the medication is delivered with. So, for example, like the Advair has um, is a dry powdered inhaler, but the device is slightly different than like the Brio, which is in the Ellipta inhaler. It's another dry powdered inhaler, but the Ellipta tends to be a little bit easier to use for patients. Um, so just something to kind of keep in mind. Yeah, and they're once daily, right? All the Elliptas or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have another class of medication that can be used that uh, targets uh, another inflammatory mediator, and some of them come as, as tablets, but they are leukotriene-modifying agents. So most of us are probably familiar with Singulair, that's Montelukast. There's also Zafirlukast and Xiloton, which is Zyflo, so there's three of them. Um, they have a warning for neuropsychiatric events and mood changes, it's generally considered low risk. Montelukast received an FDA black box warning very recently in 2020 um, due to behavioral and mood changes. So definitely something to be aware of if you have a patient who's predisposed to that. Um, the Zyflo can affect the liver, so you want to monitor LFTs. Other side effects, I mean, they're generally well tolerated. Well tolerated. You can see nonspecific side effects like headache and dizziness and maybe stomach pain. Um, upper respiratory tract infections, increased risk, and that sort of thing. But generally, they're pretty well tolerated. Um, Singular is approved for as young as one year old, though it's studied down to six months, and it's available as granules, which you may have seen before. So it can be dissolved in five mils of formula or mixed with a spoonful of applesauce, carrots, ice cream, whatever, and given that way in a, uh, in a young patient. 
And just to kind of touch on the FDA black box warning from the Montelukast, you know, I, I read kind of some of the articles that the FDA put out about that warning that they placed on that medication. And they basically were saying because even though the risk of neuropsychiatric events is low, that they, they were surprised at how many clinicians were not aware that that was an actual risk. And so they were putting that on there, not so much to scare everybody, but just to kind of make sure that clinicians were aware of it. They could discuss it with patients and all that. So if a patient's been established on it, they're doing fine. They don't have any history of mood disorders or anything like that. It's probably going to be just fine to keep them on it if you have them on it. But, um, you know, as we'll see in the actual treatment algorithm, there's, it's probably not as effective as some of the other options anyway. So you would think if the FDA was just doing it for a PSA, then they would have something below the black box warning status like a yellow box warning or something to where like hey don't we're not trying to scare you this is just an fyi because usually saying black box warning is like you know what i mean listen cole are you calling me a liar no i'm ca- <laughs> i'm saying the fda needs to get it together is what i'm saying aj you heard that didn't you it's call, call me a liar thank you um so the other uh agent that we'll talk about that's uh, an inhaled ver- inhaled medication is teotropium. So our long-acting muscarinic antagonist or our llama for short. Um teotropium spiriva respimat is uh the formulation of of teotropium that's approved in asthma. Um there are two different strengths of the spiriva respimat. So technically the lower strength um, the 1.25 is the asthma strength and then the 2.5 is the COPD strength. However, there is um some data surrounding the 2.5 dosing being utilized in asthma as well. So you may see that from time to time, but um, that, that one has some data that shows that it can be um, kind of added on um, to standard combination therapies to further improve asthma asthma symptoms if if needed. So we still are going to consider like the ICS LABA as like first line, but this can be a potential add on to uh to that and also trilogy um, which mm-hmm. is the triple inhaler the fluticasone the umeclidinium and the uh, volantarol that one is uh, also approved um in asthma for patients who need all three so that's another llama that's in that as well convenient so um i am going to walk you guys through the steps of initiating therapy and kind of where you want to go and this is in adults and adolescents it is slightly different in uh, younger patients below 12 Um, But first, just to recap, you confirm the diagnosis, um, you assess symptom control like we talked about, look for modifiable risk factors, comorbidities, um, make sure you're focusing on inhaler technique whenever you are starting somebody on it or if you're reassessing symptoms, and, you know, talk to the patients about what their goals are, whether it's decrease in symptoms, no symptoms, whatever it is, and set reasonable expectations. So with steps one to two, this would be patients who have symptoms less than four to five days a week. So it's the lowest severity. For the updated guidelines, we're using um, the reliever is the ICS for Motorol, like the generic Sembacort if you want to use that, ICS for Motorol, and then you're just using as needed ICS for Motorol. So they don't have a maintenance controller at that point. So step one to two, symptoms less than four to five days a week. If they're on the ICS for Motorol, they can just use that as they need it. They're stepping up to step three, which is symptoms most days, or they're waking. So we talked about if your symptoms wake you up. So they're waking with asthma once a week or more, they'd be in step three. So you want the low-dose maintenance ICS for Motorol. So they're taking that every day, and then they're still using it as a reliever. So they take it every day scheduled, but then they can use it as needed if they're having symptoms. So that's step three. Step four 
they're having daily symptoms, they're waking with asthma once a week or more, and they have low lung function. So this is kind of similar to step three, but they also have low lung function that you assessed kind of earlier. So now you might need to increase the dose of the ICS for Motorol. So medium dose maintenance ICS for Motorol, still having the reliever is ICS for Motorol. So that one is kind of hanging around all the way from steps one through four until we um, until it becomes more severe. Um, it also is good to note that you might need some oral corticosteroids um, if a patient is presenting severely uncontrolled. Um, so step five, so basically if you need to go up from here, what are our options next? Add on a llama, that would be next. Um, and um, you may need to refer for phenotypic assessment, plus or minus checking for anti-IgE, IL-5, IL-4, um, or consider a higher dose of ICS for Motorol. So that is effectively the preferred stepwise approach to adding patients on to, to asthma medications. They have a whole separate line, the guidelines do, for if you're not going with this ICS for Motorol approach. And just to, to summarize that, the reliever is the Saba. And in step one, you take an ICS whenever you take a Saba. So whenever you need it as needed, you're adding on an ICS. Then with step two, you have a low-dose ICS with the Saba reliever. Step three, low-dose maintenance ICS Laba. So step three is kind of where you get to the ICS Laba. Step four, increase the dose of ICS Laba. Step five, do those add-on things that we talked about. And that's kind of more of the the old way that it was done prior to two years ago, which was standard of care. Uh, but now they have the kind of preferred steps, emphasizing the ICS for Motorol as the primary drug that we are using. And we'll we'll talk about why for Motorol in in just a second. But as far as like the actual like studies and stuff that kind of back up these guideline changes. So initially in 2018, they had the uh, Sigma one and two trials, um, which were looking at different combinations of ICS, Slava, and Saba agents as well. Um, and then they also uh, in 2019 had the novel start. Um, study that was published in New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and that was the controlled trial of budesonide plus formoterol as needed for mild asthma. Um, and that was one that basically was looking at it compared directly to albuterol as needed. Um, and what they found basically was that, um, and this was done in adult patients, 18 to 75 years old, but, um, this was what they saw was that patients who were on the budesonide for motorol as needed option, um, had, um, less annual rates of asthma exacerbations. Um, and then when you compare that directly to the, uh, albuterol, um, as needed as well as, um, or excuse me, the albuterol as needed. However, it wasn't different than the budesonide like scheduled and then using the albuterol as needed. So, you know, the as needed formulation with the, um, with the steroid and the famotorol, um, was just as good as the albuterol as needed. And so what they've kind of realized is that if we do it this way, one, we're giving like less, um, exposure to a steroid over the course of the year that they're kind of looking at and you're getting less exacerbations potentially um, when especially if you're not having to give something like budesonide every single day and then add on the albuterol when you need it if you can get the same results with using budesonide for motorol as needed um, then that's going to be a, a good easy option. 
Um, and so, you know, that's, that's, uh, there's a lot of data that back up. We won't go into all the different um, studies. We've talked about that in a couple previous episodes in more detail, but I think one of the other questions that comes up a lot is like, why from Motorol specifically, like, why were they looking at that LABA instead of like Selmeterol or something else? And the kind of the reasoning behind that is, you know, the other LABAs um, are going to have a much longer onset of action. So like Selmeterol, we're thinking probably about 20, 30 minutes um, with, you know, albuterol being like within minutes, it's going to have its, uh, you know, onset of action. Uh, You know, that's what we need in the case of, you know, a, a where the person needs a rescue inhaler, they can't breathe, they're having shortness of breath, they need something to fix it right then and there. Um, so the Fermoterol is a LABA because of how long it lasts in the system. However, the onset of action is almost identical to uh, albuterol. So that's the the key component of why they chose that one and why they're, they specifically say Fermoterol plus ICS because like Dulera has that Fermoterol in it and so does the Simbacort. And so it's not so much the ICS, that part doesn't really matter, but the, uh, which I mean, if you want to be as evidence-based as possible, Budesonide is what was studied, so Simbacort. But um, the, the Fermoterol is the key component. That's why they're so specific with mm-hmm. saying that as the LABA because it's not just any LABA. Like we can't do with Advair. It has to be a Fomotorol containing LABA ICS. Yep. Very important point. So, um, we walked through the, the, the treatment algorithm as far as the steps. Mm-hmm. Um, now, like Cole was saying, you know, when you get to that step five, that's when things can get a little tricky as far as where to go from there because there's right. a lot of different options and that's where ideally if the patient has you know insurance and we have access to specialists that's where we want to kind of refer out to assess that phenotypic um, profile of their maybe types to see whether or not they have type 2 inflammation yep. and hopefully see if they're a candidate for one of these biologics uh, or, or monoclonal antibodies and if not then we can go from there but we'll, we'll kind of talk through the individual um, agents and then and before that i'll backtrack it yeah. a little bit and kind of go backwards and i'll tell you where and when to use the specific type and then we'll talk about the actual drugs themselves that cool. target these things um but yes instead of referring off we are going to address the the <laughs> biologics instead of just saying refer to a specialist we'll presume that you are a specialist so we're going to talk to you about it um so mike mentioned the type 2 target or the the type 2 inflammation so what is that effectively it's just the specific it, it, it refers to asthma that is driven by these specific markers that these monoclonal anti- antibodies are attacking. So the anti-IgE, anti-IL-5, anti-IL-4, and those are kind of the the three. Um, and you'll also hear reference to eosinophilic phenotype. So we'll kind of go through those things. If it's anti-IgE, you kind of want to assess whether a patient would be a good candidate for that medication. And we'll talk about which drug targets that. Um, But to check, you would mm, see a sensitization on skin prick testing for specific IgE. Um, You would get a total serum IgE, and you would make sure the weight is within the dosing range. Um, And you also want to check how many exacerbations they've had in the last year, because that will help them qualify. And there's certain factors um, about the patient and certain labs that um, may predict a good asthma response to an anti-IgE monoclonal antibody. One would be blood eosinophils greater than 260, um, and another would be FENO, which is like the amount of nitric oxide that you're breathing out, which is a, um, a marker of airway inflammation greater than 20 parts per billion. I think it's PPB, which I think is parts per billion. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and also check if they have allergy-driven symptoms and see if they have childhood-onset asthma. All of those might uh, make them uh, might predict a good response to an anti-IgE. Anti-IL-5, check their exacerbations in the last year, see if they've had a fair amount. Check their blood eosinophils, if they're greater than 150 or greater than 300. You want to know both of those. Um, and there are factors that would predict a good response to an anti-IL-5. The higher the blood eosinophils, the better response they'll probably have. The more exacerbations they've had, the better response they'll probably have. If they have adult-onset asthma, it might be better for an anti-IL-5 versus the IgE, which is childhood-onset asthma. Um, and you can also swap for nasal polyps. If all of those are positive, they may have a better response to an anti-IL-5. Then the last one is anti-IL-4. So is the patient eligible? Um, check their exacerbations in the last year. Also check their blood eosinophils and their FENO, that nitric oxide output. Um, and you may also kind of see, are they needing constant oral corticosteroids, like maintenance oral corticosteroids? And that would be a marker of severity and may also um, put them in a box where they would be a candidate for an anti-IL-4. The higher blood eosinophils, the better response they'll probably have. And the higher nitric oxide they're putting out, the better response they'll probably have. So those are things that you want to consider before choosing one, and it, it might help guide kind of where you go from there as well. So um, where do you want to start with so this? You can start with Zolaire if you want. Okay. Because um, I've got a couple of things we'll talk about with your picks in too, okay. so we'll come back to that. But I got excited and get ahead of myself. <laughs> so Zolaire um, the, is the uh, monoclonal antibody that's basically working by inhibiting IgE um, binding to the IgE receptor on mast cells and basophils. Um, and so this is going to be indicated for moderate to severe persistent uh, allergic asthma in patients six years of age or older, um, as long as they've had a, a skin test to a uh, specific allergen that's positive um, and uh, symptom control with regular inhaled corticosteroid is not um, adequate. So they need further uh, treatment. So uh, typically patients should need to have a, an IgE level um, between 30 and 700 international units and uh, should not weigh more than 150 kilograms. Um, there is a black box warning associated with the uh, with Zolaire and it, it can basically cause anaphylaxis in some patients. So it's given as a subcutaneous injection um, and given ideally in a healthcare setting under medical supervision due to that risk of anaphylaxis. So they associated that uh, with the black box warning and want medical supervision if possible. Um, and then there does seem to be a slight increased risk of cardiovascular adverse events for patients who are on this. Um, but other than that, the adverse effects are typically just injection site, you know, irritation and pain, um, maybe a little bit of dizziness and fatigue, but other than that, not, not too bad. Um, but the the key to that is going to be one those those uh, eosinophil or I'm sorry the uh, IgE concentrations being elevated as well as um, having a documented positive um, allergen skin prick test to to show that there is some sort of uh, allergy um, driving factor behind the asthma you know symptoms right. Exactly. And so Zolaire is the only anti-IgE. So that, that would be the one for that. Um, you also have the, the anti-IL-5s, which I talked about. And these are good in what we call eosinophilic phenotype typic asthma, um, which just effectively means they have uh, more um, eosinophils within the tissue and sputum. They have thickening of the basement membrane zone. They also have, often have good responsiveness to corticosteroids. But it's because the higher eosinophil count, the better response you may have to 
this class of medication. There's three of them. There's Nucala, which is Mepilosumab. Um, there's Syncare, which is Resolizumab, and Facenra, which you've probably seen commercials for, which is Benrolizumab. Um, ultimately, all three of them are indicated for add-on maintenance treatment in severe asthma if, if you're 12 years or older and you have the eosinophilic phenotype. Uh, with Nucala, clinical trials demonstrated statistically significant improvement in decreasing exacerbations and emergency department um, visits or hospitalizations, so it's effective. Uh, but those are the three that would be considered the, uh, the anti-IL-5s. So our uh, IL-4, um, our brand name uh, Dupixent, so our IL-4 inhibitor, um, this is one that uh, can also be used in the case of uh, patients having uh, elevated eosinophils. Um, where I really like think about this particular agent is in patients who kind of have a need for oral corticosteroid therapy. So if you have the, the patient who the only way that their asthma symptoms are controlled is by them taking something like prednisone daily, um, that is where this really can help is to get them off of the steroids. Um, and so there's a few different studies that have looked at uh, the effectiveness of this medication, but that seems to be one area where um, the, the, the really these, this medication kind of shines is where if a patient is requiring oral um, corticosteroids daily, that if we put on them on this, we can um, get rid of some of the, the steroid use. Um, and in fact, if like when Cole was talking about eligibility, um, he was mentioning, you know, assessing the uh, exacerbations of the last year and then looking at their blood eosinophil counts to make sure they're at least above 150 if in, um, in some cases higher. And uh, the exhaled nitric oxide greater than or equal to 25 parts per billion. And then the, if you look at the actual um, chart on the GINA guidelines, the 6B, where you're considering that add-on biologic therapy, they say they go through that and then they say, or if the patient has a need for maintenance oral corticosteroids. Um, so you'll see this sometimes also in patients who have like atopic dermatitis and asthma, and um, that can be a good option for those patients to get them off of those, those steroids. And in fact, I just had somebody on this maybe a month ago and the prior authorization that came up that I was working with to get approved, basically one of the, the first things they asked when it came to the clinical questions was, this, is the patient on oral steroids daily, which they were. Um, and that's what expedited the process of getting it approved was that little caveat. So something to keep in mind, you know, like, like Cole was saying, it's to kind of break down these in the simplest you know, ways of, of thinking about it. this is how my simple brain works. But I think of uh, the anti-IgEs. If you have a patient that has a documented allergen skin prec test that shows, you know, like, um, you know, that they truly have an a true allergy to this or a specific IgE, then um, that's the Zolaire is going to be a good bet. If the patient is more so just having elevated eosinophil counts, then probably the anti-interleukin five inhibitors are going to be a better option. And if the patient needs corticosteroids then uh, oral corticosteroids rather um, and we need to get rid of those then probably the anti-interleukin 4 um, inhibitor would be the the go-to option so that's kind of how i break down those three sets of biologics and how i differentiate and then if none of those apply and i've already done all the other steps if you go back and look at the um, gina kind of stepwise therapy they say refer for phenotypic assessment and then um, at if none of that works out then they say add on the llama so that's yep. kind of how I've, if I've already like like kind of exhausted my options with the um, inhaled ICS and LABA combination and those increased potency, I assess 
the skin allergen test or a specific IgE, assess their eosinophils, assess whether they need oral corticosteroids. If none of those three things apply, then teotropium or Trelogy, whatever they patient prefers. Um, most likely, if they've been on Simbacort the whole time, then they're probably going to be just adding on teotropium right. and go from that. That's a, in, in my mind, until you're a pulmonologist, that's a uh, easy way of kind of thinking about it um, to keep it kind of straight in your head. No, it is. And as simple as Mike made it, still it's kind of complex. And so there is something new coming down the pike that might make all of that um, irrelevant, interestingly. So there's a, a new drug coming that's not approved yet. Um, it doesn't have a brand name. It's from Amgen and AstraZeneca called Tezapelumab. Um, so back in February, they released the, um, the results from the Navigator Phase 3 trial, and it looked pretty promising. So just to start, what it acts on a different mechanism, so they call it a first-in-class. Everybody tries to call something a first-in-class, but it really is. Um, the mechanism it acts on is it's attacking thymic stromal lymphopoietin, TSLP, which is an epithelial cytokine that plays a key role across pretty much the, the whole spectrum of asthma inflammation. Um, and it's the first phase three trial to actually show benefit in severe asthma by targeting this TSLP. And the reason it might make all those things obsolete is because it is showing benefit in pretty much all of those three um, uh, situations that we described. The anti-IgE, the anti-IL-5, the anti-IL-4. It can be beneficial in any of those situations. And so just to, to look at a little bit of the data um, in that Navigator uh, study in patients with eosinophil counts less than 300, um, it has statistically significant uh, reductions in uh, effectively a way that they measure asthma severity over time, um, but a 41% reduction in that scale. And they also saw a 39% reduction in patients with eosinophils less than 150. So basically they didn't have to have elevated, significantly elevated eosinophils and they still saw benefit. They also saw statistically significant um, reductions compared to placebo, of course, but compared to placebo plus standard of care, um, uh, irrespective of allergy status, so that would be that anti-IgE class, or fractional exhaled nitric oxide, so that FENO that we were talking about, which is another marker that you're looking at. So throughout all three of those, it's showing promise, and it's still not approved yet, um, but when it comes out, if, if the data looks like it does, and the safety data from the study looks good as well, um, it might be kind of a, a go-to versus one of the other three. And that's not just my opinion. I have insider information from one of my um, pulm, pulmonary um, specialist colleagues that says that, that she thinks the same, so... Interesting. Not just our opinion. Not just our opinion. <laughs> Fact-based. What do we know? Fact-based. Um, the other thing that we haven't really talked about yet is if the patient is established on therapy, their symptoms are controlled, they're doing well, you know, where do we go from there? Do we just keep them on therapy indefinitely and just hope for the best? Um, ideally not. Um, we would eventually like to kind of consider step-down treatment if possible. So the, the way that the GINA guidelines say to do it is, you know, if the patient has good control of their asthma um, and it's been maintained for at least three months, then at that point, at least start the process of maybe finding what the lowest um, treatment would be necessary to control their symptoms and, and keep them from having exacerbation, um, as well as minimizing like the long-term side effects that can happen. And so, you know, looking at like an appropriate um, step-down option is, is going to be important to 
not only the clinician, but also to have that conversation with the patient as well. Um, and then to document the, the baseline status before you have like a step down, um, you know, option available for them, but kind of have them set as a baseline so you can kind of make sure that you've documented how they go from there once you do step down. And then let's say, you know, the the ICS is the main focus of the, you know, that you were trying to step down therapy with. Then um, making sure that we do like ICS dose reduction by like 25 to 50%, um, you know, at two to three month intervals and just seeing how low we can get the ICS dose that still control their symptoms. Um, if, if it is controlled um, with the low dose ICS, then maybe just going back to the as needed ICS for Motorol um, option instead of having to have them do daily scheduled ICS for Motorol doses, you know, just backing that down to as needed again to see if that's enough to control them, um, it would be a good idea. And, you know, let's say you have somebody who is on the old school regimen where they're on, you know, the Advair um, for their maintenance inhaler and then they're on albuterol for further as needed. Um, if they're doing well on fluticasone and somenorol, even at a lower dose, you've had them kind of stabilized for a couple months or a few months, then maybe switching them instead of the, the Advair combo, switching them just to the fluticasone and taking the LABA away and seeing if they're still well controlled. Um, there's all kinds of different potential options, but the, the moral of the story is we want to try to deescalate if possible, um, just to kind of save the patient from having issues with long-term side effects and, and whatnot. Yeah, I think that's a good uh, good mantra to live by with a lot of pharmacotherapy. And, you know, I, I will say if you haven't done much with using Simbacort as needed uh, in patients, you know, with, with asthma, it, it really is effective. You know, I'm speaking anecdotally, you know, I've seen patients improve quite a bit um, with, you know, they were using their albuterol multiple times a day. Um, one patient that I always kind of think about is because I, I work with a lot of um, patients that are uninsured or maybe low income. And so we had one patient who was using her albuterol inhaler like crazy to control her symptoms, um, was coming back for refills like every like seven to 10 days of the pharmacy. And, uh, you know, when we brought up using a controller medication, even though we have significantly decreased medications at our uh, clinic, um, because of the 340B pricing, um, it still was something that the patient couldn't afford two different inhalers. And so what we ended up doing is switching off the albuterol and just in switching to the Simbacort as needed instead. And the patient had much better control. Still wasn't perfect, but for what the patient could afford, and then we eventually got her patient assistance and went from there. But uh, during that time frame, we were working on all that for her. Uh, the, her symptoms got much better controlled by switching to the, the as needed um, ICS for Motorol. So, um, I've seen it in multiple patients now that it does work really well. It's, it's something that, uh, if you're in an ambulatory care setting, um, I would definitely encourage you to, uh, talk to your providers if they're not already doing it at this point, hopefully they're more comfortable with the idea, but it's something that, um, some, maybe some of the older providers still aren't going to want to try just cause it's so out of the, the norm, um, compared to what we used to treat with, uh, asthma patients with, but definitely a good idea to, to, to give it a try. And it's counterintuitive. I mean, you, yeah. once you, I mean, once you look into it, it's not, but when you hear ICS lava, what we've used for a controller for so long, being a reliever, we, we were told to counsel on not using it as a right. controller. <laughs> yeah. Don't take this uh, as needed, but it turns out you can. So at least that one, at least that one. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's a uh, kind of our summary version of, uh, I think it's pretty management. pretty detailed, right? 
Cole's always very proud of our. <laughs> I well, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you it's know, good. It's good to be. I mean, we're not asthma specialists, but it's a good point. We hit those biologics hard, didn't we? I well, we hope we hope we did. We hope we did. Well, we, we hit them. Step in just to sort of before we close. Yep. Uh, for the younger professionals, we see things change every day. I think one of the coolest things to see from the Gina update, the 2021 update, was the uh, use of azithromycin in asthma. Uh, so they did confirm it just recently. Uh, the use of three week. Three times a week azithromycin uh, for asthma and, and severe asthma, whereas we saw a, a large use of azithromycin up front for COVID-19 because of its immunomodulatory and anti-inflammatory uh, effects. Them studying that, seeing it later on, saying, hey, you know, we can continue to use these things uh, in asthma. You know, that's just something as a pharmacy student, none of our professors are talking about it because we've never seen that. You know, that's not a something that we would use azithromycin for, you know, and then, you know, the uh, antimicrobial stewardship team would probably hate to hear that. But <laughs> they, uh, you know, they're, they're working on formulations, oral formulations that wouldn't affect the, you know, the bacterial uh, resistance uh, to that. So, that, you know, there's there's a lot of good cutting edge uh, information that's coming out of this this era. Yeah, for sure. And we didn't mention it. It is referenced a little bit, especially in the step five, um, kind of looking to other options if they don't fall into a box for a biologic or they can't afford one or they've tried all these other things. It does reference that as well. So yeah, for sure. Good stuff. Thanks, AJ. So um, if you guys enjoyed that, make sure if you are a member of freece.com that you go check out the uh, the quiz or test or whatever you want to call it it's only 10 questions so it's probably a quiz and uh, as long as you pass that you'll get your continuing education credit um, if you're not a member of free CE, definitely go check them out um, make sure you check out pearls app if you haven't downloaded that um, go to www.pearls.com slash core consult rx and um, the the link to sign up is is free with your email and you can unsubscribe at any time like we said earlier but this is uh it's an app that we think is is really going to do well and yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of it myself i use it a lot now so um, check them out and uh, if you have any questions for us comments or anything make sure that uh, you reach out to us our emails will be in the show notes um, if you want to reach out to us on any of the social media platforms instagram facebook any of that you can um, if you want to send us a text directly send a text to 415 9436116 um, you'll get an automated response to asking you felt some information even if you don't want to do that just leave it alone and I'll uh, text you back as quick as we can um, even without the information and uh, if you want more like lecture format style uh lectures um instead of like podcast uh where we're all over the place sometimes the uh patreon lectures they're basically the same type of lectures that i give my pa students so we have about 90 different lectures on there right now um, with probably a couple thousand powerpoint slides so it's as cheap as three dollars a month so check out that it's www.patreon.com slash core consult rx and uh we will catch you guys in the next episode thanks a lot appreciate you guys listening and uh still following along with us have a great one.